Welcome to Inspiring Wholeness, presented by Advent Health, in partnership with the Orlando Business Journal, featuring people who make Central Florida a better place to work, live, and play. Our topic in this episode, Research Breakthroughs. Joining us, Dr. Stephen Smith, Senior Vice President and Chief Scientific Officer at Advent Health, and Dr. Kirk Erickson, Director of Translational Neuroscience at the Advent Health Neuroscience Institute. Well, Dr. Smith and Dr. Erickson, thanks to both of you for joining us. And Dr. Smith, I want to start with you. We've heard Advent Health's research efforts described as one of Orlando's best kept secrets. Could you maybe talk about the impact on our area from these efforts? Brian, we are a well-kept secret here in Central Florida, Orlando. We have over 300 trials open at any particular time that our community and uh, patients can participate in. And it spans really a broad spectrum going all the way from clinical trials. We do population science studies. We also do what's called translational research, which is bedside to bench and back, where we deploy uh, genetics research, molecular biology, cell biology. It's quite a broad swath. And to answer your question specifically, the impact's very interesting. Over the last 14 years that I've been here in Orlando, we see that our patient populations in our community actually understands now a little bit more about what research is and how participation can actually not only help individuals, but can help us all do our work in healthcare better. We learn things that then incrementally and sometimes with big breakthroughs, it can really move the needle on how we think about different diseases and different treatments. So I've been really impressed, Brian, with the response of the community here to what we've done at Advent Health over the last decade. And it's it's an exciting time to be working again with our communities to be able to bring the opportunity to participate in research, particularly as a care option treatment studies in particular. How important is it to do this research here locally versus maybe relying on outside research? Yeah, it's very interesting, Brian, that you asked that. And I'll say interesting because the process of research changes the way that we think. And that's for our physicians, for our PhD scientists, Trying to solve problems, you go a whole lot deeper than you do when you just read a paper from somewhere else. And that's really part of the ecosystem that we're developing here at Advent Health is the participation in research by our physicians, nurses, and other staff, as well as our research scientists to be able to deeply understand a problem and begin to develop solutions for those problems that we have in healthcare. Yeah, it sounds like there's really a buy-in among the entire staff when you do that, right? Oh, absolutely. I like to say all the time, research is a team sport. A lot of times we think about a professor sitting in a laboratory with maybe a student around or something like that as a means of breaking new ground. Healthcare research and clinical research in particular, this translational area, is a team sport. It takes all kinds of different people to participate. Nurses, different staff members, we have physicians, we have PhD scientists, you'll talk to Dr. Erickson here in just a few minutes. And that kind of collaborative research we see as really the opportunity to provide breakthroughs in an area, healthcare, where we are sorely in need uh, still of new ways of thinking about diseases, how they happen, 
and how we can treat them. So it's an exciting time, Brian. And I do think there's a culture at Advent Health that we've been fermenting for over a decade now that is starting to get some traction. I know we're all excited, too, to hear about maybe some of the biggest research projects on tap right now and and talk about the importance of each for the regional healthcare ecosystem. Yeah, it's interesting. We think of developing research in concentric rings. We have several hub hospitals here in Orlando, and then we've been pushing over the last, I would say, half decade or more to try to move that research ecosystem out to some of our outlying hospitals. And in fact, we're now doing research in multiple different parts of the country from our corporate headquarters here in Altamont. So it's really exciting to be able to bring research trials in particular out into the community because oftentimes clinical research is a care option. So I'll give you an example. If you have cancer, we're always pushing the envelope to create better cancer treatments. And so we have a big portfolio of clinical trials in cancer and getting those out into some of our outlying hospitals and clinics is really important because we want everybody to have access who wants to participate in research. And so that's been a big push for us here in the last half decade. And Dr. Smith, there are so many different things you could choose to tackle here What do you choose? Which areas do you focus on as far as research and why? So we listen very carefully to our communities, to our physicians and nurses. And essentially, we put our ear to the uh, railroad tracks to listen to what are the problems that are out there that we believe we need to be working on. And so that goes all the way from our neonatal intensive care unit to the other end of the spectrum of age. And that's how we scoop up these problems. It comes from our physician scientists. It comes from the administrative folks. It comes from nursing. And we integrate those to try to understand what the big problems are. And then that's where we deploy our research teams. We did that in the middle of the pandemic. For example, we had COVID research that we hadn't thought of, (laughs) you know, prior to the pandemic. That's a very acute example, but we use that same idea to say, okay, what are the problems that we anticipate or what are the problems we're having right now and then deploy? Now, what are some of the biggest research breakthroughs in the past few years? And would you maybe share how they came about? Yeah, so I'll give you a couple. You know, it's interesting. I'll give a cancer example here that we think is incredibly important for our community. There's been a revolution, and you may have heard about some of this, Brian, in cancer therapy, the so-called immunotherapies, how one can harness the immune system to actually fight your own cancer. And so that's been a big breakthrough of the last decade in oncology. It started in lung cancer and in melanoma, a kind of skin cancer, and now we're seeing it really move into other cancer areas. We just had one of our clinician scientists publish a paper in JAMA Oncology, a big journal, around a novel kind of immunotherapy for gynecologic oncology uh, cancer like ovarian cancer, and a big breakthrough there. It's a fabulous way that we can think about harnessing the immune system to attack cancer. And that's not just in that space. It's really all across oncology now and trying to unlock the ability of the immune system to fight your own cancer. We're really excited about that, Brian. We're making additional investments 
in what we call phase one or early phase research. We opened over a year and a half ago now, an early phase research unit down at the Celebration Campus near Disney. And that thing's going gangbusters. It's attracting patients who participate in really innovative immunotherapy trials. And we're excited about that. It's a big kind of gradual, but very important breakthrough area in cancer therapies. Do you see sort of a cross-pollination effect here too? Maybe you have research going on in one area that can help you in another. And I'd be interested to learn more about that. Well, Kirk's going to talk about that here in just a few minutes in the ability to cross-pollinate, for example, metabolic disease research, which is kind of my background. And Kirk and I have been talking a lot about that interface, which he'll tell you more about here in a few minutes. That's one example. But there are many examples of where, for example, many of the resources within our Translational Research Institute are now being applied to cancer whereas initially it was diabetes, obesity, aging, and now we're beginning to take some of the ideas and technologies that we deployed first in those areas and apply them to oncology. That's happening now in pancreatic diseases and other spaces. So I think once you begin to develop, Brian, an ecosystem where people actually talk to each other and start sharing ideas and technologies, it develops a life of its own, which is very satisfying for me to see. That is great to hear. And Dr. Erickson, want to bring you in. You know, we've seen a number of breakthroughs related to cancer research, but few when it comes to making much headway in understanding Alzheimer's disease. It's a great mystery. With the number of new Alzheimer's cases expected to exponentially grow here in the next few years, where is the research now focusing in hopes of making some breakthroughs? Yeah, Brian, this is a very important and interesting question. First of all, we've made some exciting breakthroughs actually in just in the last year in Alzheimer's disease research. We've been learning for the last maybe decade or so that the aging brain, as we get older, our brain doesn't just deteriorate or atrophy and decline inevitably. There's things that we can do about it and the brain retains some of its capacity for modification. And some of my previous work and others in this area of science have discovered that the brain retains this capacity even in the late life. And recently, pharmaceutical companies have taken advantage of this and have found some drugs that can actually modify Alzheimer's disease pathology. So this is really remarkable. This is the first time this has ever been discovered and is out on the market and is being advertised. So we're expecting more of these breakthroughs. There's still a lot to learn, but this last year has been been really quite impressive. So I see a lot of hope. I see really a lot of hope in the direction that we're going for not only pharmaceutical interventions, but for our basic understanding of brain function and the ways that we can capitalize and leverage the natural properties of the brain to maintain function and even improve function when something bad happens to it. You know, it'd be great if there was a pill we could take, and it sounds like at some point maybe there will be, but we hear more and more about the role of physical activity on brain health. You know, being active is so important. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is one of the areas that I think that we really know the most about in terms of factors that affect your brain health. Quite often people will ask me, is doing crossword puzzles going to maintain my brain function? And uh, 
And I think so. I would hope so to some extent. But actually, to be honest, some of the best medicines, lifestyle factors that we have for the brain actually come in the form of diet and physical activity. And physical activity probably ranks the highest on the list, primarily because we have the most data to support it right now. So we know that when you become physically active, it induces a whole cascade of various things happening, not only in your muscles and in in your body, but also in your brain. And one of the things that happens is your brain produces new neurons. It produces new neurons when you exercise and it produces these new neurons in a brain region critically involved in memory formation and that this brain region also deteriorates with Alzheimer's disease. So there's a very close link between the brain regions affected in Alzheimer's disease and how or the the brain regions that are affected uh, by engaging in physical activity. So there's a lot of interesting links there. And we've known now for quite a few years that if you are able to maintain a physically active lifestyle, you are going to show a reduced risk of developing Alzheimer's disease later in life. So there are things that we can do, we can do now to try to reduce our risk of developing or preventing Alzheimer's disease or cognitive impairment in general from occurring. You know, when you mention those attributes, I think of my parents and I bring them into the conversation because my dad's 84, my mom will soon be 80. They get up every morning, you know, they still read the newspaper, (laughs) they go for a walk one to two miles. And they have a garden. And I've always said how important that garden is because you you talk about physical activity. It doesn't have to be getting on a treadmill or lifting weights. But my dad's out there pulling weeds, building fences, you know, tending to his garden. I've always said how important that is, you know, not only in your physical, but also in your mental health, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very interesting you say that because in the field, we'd still discuss how much physical activity is really needed. And this is unfortunately an unanswered question right now. We know that physical activity is good for you, but the critical question is how much do you need to get? And is working in the garden going to be sufficient or do you need to go more active, more vigorous in order to really reap the benefits of physical activity? And We think it's probably a mixture of things, right? So for an example, let's say somebody exercises 30 minutes a day very vigorously, but then sits down on the couch and doesn't do anything for the rest of the day Mm -hmm. compared to somebody who like maybe your parents who are always active for long periods of the day. What are the differences in those activities and the impact of that type of duration or the amount of activity that those examples are giving us for reducing the risk for Alzheimer's disease? So these are really important questions. And that's some of what the science is happening here. We're trying to resolve, trying to answer some of those questions so we can make very clear prescriptions for people who want to reduce their risk or are are trying to reduce their risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. That's great to hear. This is kind of a tough question, but I'm going to ask it. I guess it would depend on the individual, but maybe if there's one simple thing someone could start doing today to protect their brain health, what would it be? The one simple thing, maybe it depends a little bit on what the person is already doing. I have to qualify this statement, but I have to say that my number one recommendation is physical activity. We have the most data around the benefits and uh, we know how it affects the brain. We know that physical activity, typically physical activity levels decline as we get older. And so try to maintain activity, try to keep yourself active, physically active. And by maintaining that physical activity, you will keep your brain active as well. And so this is probably my most important 
biggest recommendation. Now, the other component of this as well is that whatever keeps your heart healthy typically is good for your brain. And so when we come back to physical activity, it's probably not a surprise for any cardiologist or neurologist to hear that physical activity is good for your brain because we know that what's good for your heart tends to be good for your brain. And so take those messages. We've been delivering those messages for a long time about how to maintain proper weight, how to maintain blood pressure, how to maintain a healthy heart. And it turns out that those things are very similar, if not identical, to maintaining a healthy brain. We all hear it. We have to get out and do it. It sounds like it's it's this activity piece. And Dr. Smith had talked about uh, the research here, and I want to kind of bring this full circle, too, and talk about the research and how that plays into the overall health ecosystem as it applies here. Yeah, it's really important for everyone to understand that, first of all, science and medical science in particular doesn't just happen with clinical patients. Obviously, patients are an essential piece, but we also want to, I want to understand brain function and prevent a disease from occurring, right? It's much better if I can prevent it than trying to figure out ways of treating it once it's already occurred. So, mm-hmm. so we need to understand both sides of this, the whole spectrum. And so we need people to be engaged in research. We need the community to be engaged in research from those people who may not have a disease, may not have a condition, but are interested in learning more about how to get involved, how to contribute to those people who are patients and have some condition that is affecting their lives. So I think that this is really important. And science is the basis for all of our discoveries and all of our innovation, our newest approaches for tackling a disease, a condition. We wouldn't be here without our science. And uh, and as Dr. Smith was saying, it takes an entire community, an entire village to really produce the types of results and breakthroughs that are going to change the world. That's exactly what I was thinking as you said that. When people hear research, they think of test tubes, they think of data, they think of, you know, white coats and all that. But, you know, the approach that you're taking, I mean, might start with a doctor at the street level who sees a patient and says, you know what, this patient's doing really well here. And what is it that they're doing that is making them well, right? And in really implementing that into this and that knowledge that you're getting from your patients and the entire community is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is the reason why it's important to educate. It's important to not only think about the science, but to educate the community about the science. And this is, I think, something that both uh, Dr. Smith and I hold very dearly is that we want to communicate our research, the importance of the research. We want to make the community understand not only what we're doing, but the impact that we're having, the way that we're trying to shape the world and shape the field of medicine. Um You can be in the trenches or you can be at the top administering everything, but it takes everyone in between to get this work done. Yes, so many important roles. I'm curious for you, Dr. Erickson, what brought you into the research space? I mean, you could have gone a lot of different directions with your career. What was it about research that uh, interested you? That's a very interesting question, Brian. (laughs) I have always been interested in the brain. And uh, when I I have to admit, when I was in college, I didn't really know exactly the direction that I wanted to take until I entered into a laboratory that was doing some memory research. And 
I developed my own research paradigm to test a particular memory phenomenon that, that actually still today remains a bit of a mystery. And uh, the <laughs> professor that I was working with, she was extremely supportive and uh, really promoted my creativity. And I love the creativity around science. And so she really promoted the creativity, the thinking outside the box. And uh, I fell in love with it. And I realized I didn't want to pursue anything else. This is what I wanted to do and um, kept continuing down that track. Well, we're glad you did. And Dr. Smith, how about you? What was it that brought you into research? You know, I had great mentors, which is exactly what uh, Dr. Erickson was saying a few minutes ago. I had people who slowed down and had a conversation and looked over the shoulder and were encouraging. There were programs when I was in high school, actually, where we had an opportunity in the summer to uh, participate in research. Same in my undergraduate years. And even when I was in medical school in the summers, I worked in research labs. And so it's a little bit like eating a good cookie. Sometimes you take your first bite and <laughs> you go, that's pretty good. But, you know, that third cookie is also pretty good, too. So it kind of grows on you over time. The ability to be curious and creative, I think, go together. And But mentors and systems to entrain young people into STEM, you know, the the different areas of science, engineering, mathematics, I think is incredibly important. And how important is it at Advent Health to continue that curiosity? I mean, everything you talked about, this is why you get out of bed every day, right? I mean, this is what gets you going, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there is a concept out there called a learning healthcare system where everybody's curious. It's not just the researchers, it's the clinicians, it's the administrators, the people who have all the data about health outcomes. And I think curiosity and humility are two big components of what a learning healthcare system is. You have to care and explore and you have to not always know the answer. And I think once healthcare systems get to that point, it's a flywheel. It keeps moving and you keep learning and you keep challenging each other with data and ideas, uh, et cetera. And that's one of the things I love about Advent Health right now is that we're in that mode where we are challenging each other around Can we do better? And if so, how can we do better? And it may be a paper we read, Brian. But as I said earlier, the ability to conduct research, I think, sharpens our cognitive abilities to ask hard questions and and to try and answer them. So it's a great time in healthcare right now, Brian. And, And for our listeners, I would hope that they challenge themselves in the business world in the same way. I'm pretty sure some do. And it's exciting to be able to be curious and solve problems. It's very, very positively reinforcing. Well, that's great news for all of us. And Dr. Smith, what inspires you to feel whole? Well, Brian, I'm really big into community right now. It's how we work together as teams, not only in the workplace, but in our personal lives to solve problems, to work through challenges. There's something about working with others that makes life better. I try to build community, certainly within my work and with my friends. I still stay in touch with people I've known since high school and college. And I think those kinds of networks where you can just pick up the phone and call somebody and work with others to solve problems, I find that extremely rewarding. And it is part of being whole, is being in community with others. So thanks for the question, Brian. I think it's a great one. And Dr. Erickson, how about you? What inspires you to feel whole? Yeah, I have to um, spin off of Dr. Smith's comment a bit because I agree with him. And I would also have to say that um, 
my colleagues, the team that uh, that I work with, my fellow scientists that we do science together and publish and think creatively, this is exciting to me. But it also goes beyond that. And I think Dr. Smith is alluding to the entire community and the entire community around me. And that includes my family and it includes my friends and it includes people that I can chat with and talk to and being able to be here and share with you the amazing work that's being done in this space. And these are the types of things. This right here is what makes me feel whole. Well, Dr. Erickson and Dr. Smith, we appreciate both of you taking a time out to join us on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's been great to be with you today. Yeah, thank you, Brian. It's been great to be here. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for any professional advice or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views expressed by our guests are their own. Their participation in this podcast does not imply an endorsement by them or any entity they represent.